The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Good morning to you. Uh, good morning to you here. Good morning to you virtually. Uh, we're going to start out in Isaiah 61. I'm actually going to read Isaiah 61, uh, and then I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll get, get right into it. So uh, if you have your Bible... Um, I should say also that I, we will be jumping around to a number of different texts. I think most, if not all of them, I have slides for. So if you're uh, not into flipping through your Bible at high rates of speed throughout the course of a sermon, those will be projected onto the screen. And I should also say, too, that uh, my uh, manuscript will be available online where I have not just the references I'll talk about today, but more references that I won't uh, address. So if you're in Isaiah 61, uh, we'll read this together, and then we'll pray. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Then they, we, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate bribery and the burnt offering and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For, the, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for this space. We're thankful uh, for your word. We're thankful for your spirit's activity among us, and I pray today that you would help us to, uh, to hear your word clearly. I pray that you would give me 
uh, clarity of thought and expression. And as we open um, our minds and our hearts to what your word says, I pray that not only your spirit would grant us understanding, but that you would quicken our hearts to uh, be spurred on to this compelling vision of the gospel. Amen. So, uh, when we come to a topic as broad as the gospel, uh, decisions have to be made about how to best uh, approach the material. And it's very similar to the topic of truth uh, last week. There's seemingly endless avenues that a preacher could go down, and there are equally as many avenues that the uh, audience might want you to go down. And even when I was asked to preach this sermon, without knowing its place in the August uh, series, I had to ask for clarification. Uh, so Jacob had texted, the, the title of the sermon is The Gospel. Um, so for, and, and then I spent the next couple weeks just asking random people, like, if you had to preach a sermon called The Gospel, uh, what would you say? And the answers were all different. Um, so for The Gospel, we could actually focus on the word gospel itself. Um, it's pretty interesting. It has an interesting history, both in the Bible and in the wider world, uh, particularly in the Roman Empire of Jesus' day. And in this context, in Isaiah 61, we see the word um, among the first times we've seen it in the Bible. Um, the text says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. That good news is gospel. So it arises out of this period of desolation for the nation of Israel. The word just simply means good tidings, and it's often associated with a royal context, like you would announce the coming of a king. Um, and it's not just any king. Uh, it's, a, it's good news because this figure is going to uh, bring justice, is going to restore order, is going to console his people. It's all the political slogans you've ever read in your life that the great hope is arising now, if not in 2016 or 2012 or 2004 or back as far as we go. 2020 is when it's definitely going to happen. All will be made right when something happens in 2020. So, so that's the way that the word is used. And it's not just a Bible word. Like, I think we're conditioned to think of it that way. But, but it's actually used um, to celebrate the birthday of Octavian. If you're familiar with Greco-Roman history, uh, Octavian is the one that we would later know as Caesar Augustus. So that's Luke 2. Those things you kind of plow through because they're long, boring, confusing names. Those were actual people. And even in those contexts, the word gospel was used to celebrate Octavian's rulership. Um, and that's how Augustus was viewed. Uh, he ruled Rome with justice, with absolute authority. There's statues of him all over the empire. Uh, so his birthday was heralded with this, this good news. And to experience the blessing of being under Augustus's rule was to experience the blessing of the God themselves, the gods, excuse me, themselves. So we could just focus on the word gospel. We could actually also focus on the content of the gospel. Like if you had to make a list, if you've been in the church for any period of time and you had to make a list of what are the actual components of the gospel, 
uh, what would you say? So in various places in the New Testament, authors like Paul, they give clear expression to what the gospel actually is. And we have a couple of those if we have slides. Um, yeah, so Romans 1, 1 to 6, Paul talks about how he is uh, called into the gospel, and then he sort of expounds what that means. He talks about how Jesus was born in the line of David, all those sorts of things. Galatians 1, 4 is another example where Paul says he has delivered us from this present evil age. Uh, a couple months ago, uh, we were in a series in 1 Corinthians, and anything before like COVID feels like 70 years ago. So there was a series on 1 Corinthians, and chapter 15 gives that expression to Jesus died and was raised according to the scriptures. That's used a couple times. So we could actually focus just on the content of the gospel. Like, what does the New Testament say that the gospel is? But I'd like to avoid uh, a theology lecture, quite frankly. Um, I think there are times we can be so interested in being right about the content that we can miss some of the more missional aspects of the gospel. And this actually happened to me as I was thinking about what actually is the gospel. Like I would make a list of Jesus died for our sins, Jesus was raised. I, I would make a list of those propositions. And then I read Romans 1, 1 to 6, and I'm like, oh yeah, David's line. Like I wouldn't have even thought about that. So you know, I missed one out of seven on the quiz, so my grade was, was terrible. Um, but I think that there's, so, there's times where we can be very exacting in the way that we look at the gospel, and we sort of trip ourselves up when we miss, like, one, one area. Um, and simply put, I think that everybody has a different point of access to the gospel, so just taking the Gospels themselves in the New Testament, uh, you have a variety of different sorts of people coming to Jesus for a variety of different reasons, right? Uh, the woman at the well, she comes to Jesus and her moral life is uh, critiqued. The woman with the blood issue, she's just desperate to push through the crowd and to, to touch Jesus' garment. Zacchaeus was viewed as a traitor. He's extorting money from his neighbors to line his own pockets and to align himself with Rome. The thief on the cross is a, is a great example of somebody. He just begs for mercy. There's no evidence that he knew that Jesus was born in David's line. So what I'm, I hope you see what I'm trying to avoid is just this, I have to believe these 19 different things in order to come uh, to Jesus. In each of these cases, everybody has a different point of access. It's not to say that they're not important. I hope you're not hearing me that way. I think what we believe matters profoundly, but I don't want to lose sight of the good news for feeling the anxiety of making sure I have all 19 points of, of the gospel lined up. And, and in that way, sort of starting down the trajectory of, of the Pharisees, perhaps. So all of these people meet Jesus, and they have this compelling vision of God's justice and love, and, and each in a different, a different sort of way. They experience his kindness and his compassion. And I think that that's true for us now. I think that each of us has a different point of access to the gospel, a different thing about Jesus that we might find um, compelling, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a bit. 
So we could focus on the word, we could focus on the content, we could actually focus on the books themselves that come to be called the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of the gospels communicates the same basic message, uh, and I want to spend a bit of time actually reflecting like toward the end how John communicates the message in a, in a pretty interesting and I think compelling way. And returning to Isaiah 61 for a second, um, this is actually the very passage that Jesus quotes in the synagogue at Nazareth when he stands up uh, to read. So he has just come, come back from the temptation account, and he's reading at the synagogue in Nazareth. And he quotes it in this way, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty, liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you're familiar with the story. Jesus stands up and reads it. Nobody really quite knows what to make of it because they knew Jesus when he was a teenager, and it's kind of confusing to have him stand up and read. But they're good-natured enough about it. And, and then he perhaps adds to the confusion by saying, oh yeah, by the way, that's happening right now in me. And then he sits back down, and they're still not feeling too bad about it until he says something about the Gentile inclusion, and then all of a sudden everybody finds the nearest rock, and they're pretty upset with, with him. So I think already in the gospel what we're seeing is Jesus' understanding of his mission as well as his understanding of what gospel is. It's this massive declaration of God's good news for oppressed people. And it's this good news that I want to focus on today. So any of these avenues would be legitimate. Uh, any of them would be worthwhile. And each of them in and of themselves could be, I think, an entire series. So as a teacher, I teach at Hillside Middle School, for those of you who don't know me, I'm regularly confronted with the question, you asked it in middle school, what was it? When am I ever... Oh, you guys must have all been perfect students. I get this question like nine times a day. When am I ever going to use this in my life? I consider that to be a legitimate question. Um, and I feel like it's one that I'd like to address today because I think there is something of a burden of proof on Christians uh, to say like, when am I ever really going to use the gospel in my life? If it's just an insurance policy to get me to heaven when I die, that's not really the Bible's vision. So I'd like to to not focus on those other aspects as much as when are we going to use this in our lives. And my aim is to try and balance the big picture and the details throughout this morning's sermon. And in addition to all of that, my strong motivation is to have you hear the, that the gospel, it always opens us up to more. It always opens us up. It doesn't constrict us. It is God's vision for everything. So that when we are called into God's kingdom, it doesn't confine us. It actually opens us up to new ways of flourishing. Not just for our own well-being, but for our relationships, for our families, for our marriages, specific spheres of society, if you're in finance, if you're in education, if you're in politics, the gospel speaks to that. If you're 
is interested in areas of social justice, the gospel speaks to those issues. And one of the things that I am burdened by is the feeling that, that social justice sorts of issues are marginal to what God is actually doing. And when you read Isaiah 61, or even Jesus' quotation of it, you're talking about marginal people. I dare say that in the Old Testament, that's what God is all about. When Israel comes into judgment, it's very often for idolatry. Um, it's very often for spiritual adultery. But a lot of times, it's economic oppression of their neighbors. Like, that is critiqued pretty heavily. So no matter what your point of access, no matter what your area of concern, the gospel isn't limited in its application, and it should affect every area of our lives. And as I say, there's going to be a lot of texts. I'm going to shoot a lot of different things at you. Um, I'm always happy to follow up on any of this as, uh, as your interest leads, because I'm pretty passionate about this stuff, and I think as a starting point to catch a vision for what God's doing in the world, we have to look at all the texts, right? I don't want to just be guided by a vision of social justice because that's going to become a weapon against other people, right? So social justice, environmental issues, I want to be guided by the text itself and to see that if this is something that concerns God, if this is an area for the gospel, then I want to be concerned about it. Uh, so I hope I hope that makes sense. So, uh, my three points, I hope, are very simple. The main point is that the gospel reveals the good news of God's reign. Very simple. God is king. He is reestablishing his rule over creation. And the good news is that this just and beautiful king is coming to reign. First, I want to focus on the gospel reveals good news for individuals. Uh, second, and perhaps in my mind more importantly, I want to focus on the fact that the gospel reveals good news for the nations. And finally, I want to focus on the fact that the gospel reveals the good news for the cosmos, which is a grand statement, I know, but I, I'm, I'm going to get there. So. so first up, the gospel reveals good news for individuals. We all, at some point, have experienced the brokenness of the world, and we've all experienced it in perhaps different ways. Whether you use the vocabulary of sin to, um, to describe that, I think that um, everybody in any sphere of life can probably sign off on the fact that the world and the people in it are not as they could be, right? You look at society and you think, everything's not quite as it could be. I don't think that that's a radical claim. And we even have this sense of the way that things should be. So even if I ask the most dyed-in-the-wool secular person, is everything in the world operating in a just and right fashion? Probably people are going to say no. And whatever we experience, I think the gospel reveals God's good news over that area of life. Do you have personal struggles? Are you experiencing addiction? Addiction to anything, right? Physical limitations. I think that that's included in Isaiah's proclamation. If you experience physical limitations, God is not unconcerned about that. The gospel covers all of those things. 
Are you experiencing grief? Are you experiencing alienation and isolation? <laughs> Isolate. Is anyone experiencing isolation during COVID? No? Everybody's just out there living their life, your best life now. Um, do you ever experience this kind of restless longing? Like the sense that there's more. Um, Galatians 1.4 says it this way, uh, talking about Jesus, who gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us from the present evil age. So that's good news for the individual that by virtue of his death and resurrection, Jesus has in some form delivered us from the present evil age. So we still live here. We still experience that darkness and yet we are delivered in some way. Romans 6.4 talks about it this way. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And even just that phrase, do you know of anybody who doesn't want to experience that on some level? Like even if you, you pull the phrase out of context, say, boy, would you... Would you like the opportunity to walk in newness of life? I mean, is, is there anybody here who could sign on for a bit of that? Okay, Jamie and Hannah, the rest of you are all, all good. Okay, so I'm, I'm with you and those of you watching at home, I see that hand there. I'm trying to avoid the temptation to like call out kids' names who might be watching on the camera, but um, I'm just a walking distraction, so I'm going to try to avoid that because then I would leave a kid out. I might forget to mention Silas or something, and then then there'd be crying, and I, I don't want to be the cause of, of crying. So, moving right along, um, if you feel this sense of isolation, Ephesians 2.14 says it this way on my paper. For he himself is our peace, who has made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How many of you have ever experienced some sort of hostility and alienation from another person? Nobody. Excellent. Boy, you guys are good. You should be up here preaching. Um, but that's what Christ does. And again, if you ask the question, just think of your coworkers, your neighbors, friends, fellow church people. Um, who doesn't want to experience some measure of that peace? I don't think there are too many people who actively go out and look to be isolated and alienated from other people. Like, there's very few people who just don't want to be liked by other people, who don't want to um, have relative peace with their neighbor. And the gospel offers that to individuals. That's why it's good news for the individual, that Jesus in his flesh has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So as I mentioned earlier, people who encounter Jesus, they all have different points of access in this way. Again, the woman at the well, Jesus seems to meet a lot of tax collectors. He meets Peter and John, who are running a, a, what appears to be a successful fishing business, and he calls them to be fishers of men. They have a different point of access. Nicodemus, another example, somebody who is a religious leader, uh, somebody who knows all that he needs to know, but still somehow feels compelled to go and see Jesus at night. Like he just, he aches to be around him and he, he feels some sort of restless longing in himself that compels him to do that. And he does it at night out of fear. Like, so it's, it, it's an interesting, interesting story. Mary and Martha, 
everybody has sort of a different point of access and all of us are the same. The problem is the same. We're separated from God. We're separated from one another. We're actually, the Bible says, separated from creation itself in some ways. And that separation is repaired by Jesus' death and resurrection. So the gospel reveals good news for us as individuals. We can experience that the gospel announcement and our response to it, is, it's working in us as well as working among us. So that's good news for the individual. Second, the gospel reveals good news for the nations. It isn't enough to limit the gospel to individuals. Um, personally, I feel that God's purposes are always too grand and too glorious to be contained by an individual. One person can't handle all that weight. You think back to Abraham. You think to the beginning of the Israelites. Uh, the promise wasn't just to bless Abraham, but to give him innumerable descendants. As God called and led Israel out of Egyptian slavery, it wasn't just for their own sense of well-being. Their calling and their vocation in the world was to be a light to the nations. That the nations should look to Israel. They should see how God is among them, how God is blessing them. And the nations should also be compelled to walk in that light. Isaiah 49 says it this way. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. What's interesting to me is the more we drift into this sort of isolated, frozen, chosen, we're God's special people and everybody else can, can go somewhere else, the more Israel does that, the more that she isolates herself from this mission, the more trouble she ends up getting in. And I think I could probably make a strong case historically that the church is the same thing. That the more we wall up with each other, the less we are on mission in the cities that God has called us, the more likely we are to become isolated, set up straw people, become a little bit arrogant, start to turn on each other, and we're watching de-evolution in our community. Now, if you fast forward to the New Testament, the very beginnings of the gospel show that it was never just for Israel, though it started there. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 is, is the most obvious. It's a clarion call to bring the good news everywhere. Acts 1.8 says it this way, Jesus tells his followers that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, that's the book of Acts. Um, so it already shows this movement from this isolated movement in Jerusalem to, to something that's going to reach the ends of the earth, which I believe Paul does uh, toward the end of the book of Acts. So these are fairly obvious statements that the gospel is good news for the nations, and it has to be viewed that way. It's not just pop psychology helping us to experience self-actualization and feel better about ourselves and our lives. God's purposes are always bigger than that. So even among these obvious statements, there's more subtle ways of communicating the same thing. Uh, one 
that I find ironic and interesting is uh, the sign that they hang above Jesus' head when he's crucified. Um, if you remember, Pilate ordered that a sign reading King of the Jews be nailed above Jesus' head. And Pilate ordered that it be written in Greek, be written in Latin, and be written in Hebrew slash Aramaic. It was probably Aramaic. Now, Pilate's direct motivation was probably to scare off people who were going to try to do the same thing, and I believe is really trying to stick it to the religious leaders, because Pilate just can't stand them. And if you read John's Gospel, he's just looking for some way to, to stick it to them, because they, they try to tell him, like, well, could you put on the sign that he said he was king of the Jews? And Pilate says, I put what I put. It's staying on there. And he probably derives some sense of joy from their misery. But... Um, while his direct motivation wasn't to honor God, the irony is that sign is exactly correct. And that sign is written in every language that could be read in the world at the time. So even there, you get a very subtle point toward the nations that this is what God is concerned about. And it's made even more ironic that this is how the king of the Jews comes into his power, by offering himself on behalf of others. So it's written in all these languages. So keep jumping around a little bit. And my point in jumping text to text is partially because when you're dealing with a topical sermon, I like to include a lot of Bible because I feel a little untethered by a topical sermon where like you're sort of subject to whatever hobby horse I want to jump on. Anyone ever experienced that before? Where you're listening to a sermon and you're like, it doesn't happen here, thankfully. But times where I'm like, I'm not sure that's exactly what, what the Bible says. So I try to include a lot, of, uh, a lot of text just to show you that it's there. And then once you know what you're looking for, I think you're going to see it all over the place. So, end of commercial. Finally, in the book of Revelation itself, everybody's favorite book, uh, John's vision includes several mentions of the nations. Actually, this phrase gets used seven times if you're interested. Go check it out. Um, but anyway, in talking about Jesus in Revelation 5, the four living creatures and the elders, quote, sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals because, so his worthiness is because he was slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That phrase, every tribe and tongue and people and nation, is used seven times in Revelation. One more time, just a couple chapters later, John sees, quote, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God's good news is for the nation, and even Revelation in semi-bizarre apocalyptic language talks about that, that it's not just enough for one people group to worship before the Lamb. Uh, Jesus, in chapter 5, it says that he has ransomed people for God, so the gospel isn't just limited to one people group, it's for all people. So the gospel reveals God's good news for the nations. And again, I think as you start, or as you continue reading scripture, you're going to see that all over the place. Finally, the gospel reveals God's good news for the cosmos. Now, the word cosmos is admittedly a grand 
one, uh, but I'm just using the word that John 3.16 uses for world. Anyone ever heard of John 3.16? Anyone familiar with that reference? Um, for God so loved the world. It's the Greek word cosmos. So it doesn't seem a stretch to me that the God who made all things and called all things into being by his powerful word in Genesis 1 would actually love all things and be deeply concerned for their redemption as well. So much so that he would offer his own son on their behalf. So I just want to take a minute uh, to spell out a bit more clearly uh, why I draw this conclusion, why the gospel is good news for the cosmos as well. Um, when you go back to Genesis 3, well, you go back to Genesis 1, obviously you have a creator who created all things good. That's the repeated phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said, and there was, and there was, it was good. God's just like celebrating the richness and the goodness of creation. And then when it's all over, God looks at it and he says, this is very good. This is like A++ material here. Like he's looking around saying like, <laughs> look what I did. Uh, like it's just awesome. And, and the Bible never really loses sight of that. But you go to Genesis 3 with the fall of human beings. God pronounces his curse over the serpent. He pronounces his curse over the man and woman. And he pronounces his curse over the ground itself. The ground will no longer yield its fruit without human beings having to toil in order to get it. So if we had all kinds of time, I would walk you through the provision. Environmental issues, I should say, is that's the hobby horse I'm trying to protect you from because I think the Bible is, is very strong in its environmental ethic. But I'm just going to mention a couple to try to discipline myself. Um, if you go back to the Old Testament law, Leviticus 25, anyone big fans of Leviticus out there? Well, if you, if you make it to chapter 25, you're a very impressive human. But what you're going to read there is uh, God's protection of the land under the Old Testament law. That one in seven years, they were supposed to basically leave the land alone. Like, don't work the land for that year. Let it rest. And if you keep reading, particularly in Jeremiah, there's actually subsequent punishment of that. Because, like most things, Israel didn't actually do it, right? So Jubilee, it's this beautiful picture of economic justice and starting over and God's goodness and all that. And it's a provision in the law. The problem is that Israel never actually did it. It's like the speed limit being 30 miles an hour. If you never obey that sign, it's almost as though the sign's not there. Um, but so there's a subsequent punishment for Israel um, and when we get to Daniel in the fall, Daniel takes place during that period where God's people are basically booted out of the land. They're in exile. They're in Babylon. And part of the reason that God puts them in exile is because he's going to give the land its Sabbath. God says, I'm going to let the land rest from you people. So that's actually part of the reason why they're judged, why they go into exile. Um, so there's negative sorts of examples alongside more positive ones. Like if you go to Psalm 104, it's just this incredible celebration of God's diversity in creation, that there's biodiversity. And I always, like we're in the boat in Maine, and I'm constantly talking about Psalm 104 because there's just such richness and diversity in sea life. Like you think about it, 
there doesn't really strictly have to be different kinds of animals, but there are, <laughs> which I just think is awesome. Like there doesn't strictly speaking have to be all these different types of flowers, but there are. And if that's not a sign of God's goodness and richness and generosity, there's even vegetables. And if you don't like one vegetable, there are more than one vegetable. You might hate all of them, but at least you have multiple options. And I think that that shows God's goodness in creation. So, um, so the ground itself is cursed. And we see an interesting passage here in Romans 8 where it says that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's Exodus type of language where God's people groan and they cry out to him for deliverance. That, but that's the subhuman creation calling out to God for deliverance. That's the trees and the dirt and like all sorts of diverse things. So the gospel isn't just for individuals. It isn't just for the nations. It's for everything. And you read, again, you go back to Isaiah, you're going to see trees clapping, you're going to see mountains shouting. Even Jesus, when he's going into Jerusalem, they say, tell your disciples to be quiet. And what does Jesus say? If they're quiet, the rocks themselves are going to cry out. Like, all of creation is, is going um, to cry out. So, I hope that's not too strange for you. I hope that's not too radical. But for what this does for me is not just like show a compelling vision of creation, but to realize that there's not a single corner of creation that God's not interested in. And I can get pretty excited about that. Like as proclamation of the gospel, I've probably shared this before, so forgive me for repeating myself, but when I became a believer, I was already interested in environmental issues. I love being outside. I love running. I love hiking. Time outside is just a blessing. So to read Psalm 104, excuse me, to read Romans 8 and to see that God cares about these things too, and it's actually a legitimate part of my life as a Christian. There's not a single area where I'm like, well, I'm going to go do my secular thing now. And I carry that over into even something as... as terrible as teaching math in a public school. Like, I carry that same thinking into that God's not unconcerned about that either, and that God actually, through the gospel, through scripture, has a robust, robust vision for what that looks like as well. So, I hope, if nothing else, if these topics aren't interesting, at least we start hopefully to generate some excitement about the fact that every single thing I do over the next 24 hours is a part of my Christianity, that God cares about this, and that it's a legitimate part of gospel proclamation as well. And not just for us as individuals, but as I think about my coworkers, some of them are already on this trajectory. They love kids. They are interested in matters of social justice. 
like you've, you've already got somebody a couple steps down the road. Imagine if you could match that with, hey, you know what? God loves that stuff too. And there are going to be components of the New Testament and the gospel that are going to be a little bit tricky and troubling. And that's fine, but at least you're giving them an opportunity to hear the robust vision that God has for creation. I think that people can, can get excited about that. So I'd like to conclude with just one example of um, something that I think illustrates the gospel in part. Um, it's not that the word gospel is used. Um, it's just something that came out of my own reading of John over the last month or so. Um, and I've spent some time reflecting on this, and I think that this illustrates exactly what the gospel is. And then it's up to us to creatively apply that in the t- context that God calls us. So, just as a quick bit of background, John's gospel is structured around signs. So there's seven signs. Matthew, Mark, and Luke will use the phrase mighty deeds, or we'll say miracles, but John structures them around signs. Um, And the first of his signs in John is a wedding at Cana. Real place. I believe if you ask my wife, you can still go there. Um, Not that she would grant you permission. That didn't come out the way that I intended. My wife doesn't actually own Cana, so um, that's not what I meant. She went to Israel, and that might have been one of the places she went. Not even close. Terrible example. Strike it from the record. It's not even there anymore. It's not real. Everything's fake news. So... Um, I believe you can still go to this place. But we know the story. So Jesus is at this wedding, and he's with his mom at the wedding. And I don't even have a joke for that. And the host runs out of wine. Now, in the ancient world, this is a big deal. If we come to your house for some sort of barbecue or cookout or something, and you run out of food, like, how many? That's bad, right? Now, there's like, imagine going to a wedding, like 97% of the reason you go to a wedding is for the food. Did I just use my out loud voice in saying that? Like, especially on a nice Saturday in summer, like, I got married. Oh, there's salmon, so all right, we'll go. Um, but anyway, you go to a situation like that, and, and you run out of wine, that's, that's trouble. Uh, so there's lots of potential shame and embarrassment for the host. Now, Mary, in good mom-like fashion, she tries to force Jesus out there, you know, show him that that trick that you do, um, because she knows what he's about. Um, So she tries to force him out onto the stage. They have a slight disagreement, but Jesus ultimately turns the water into wine. And everyone's really stoked by this, like, because it's really good wine. Uh, So they would say that, you know, well, people usually bring out the bad stuff last, but you brought out the best stuff. And John 2.11 states clearly that this was the first of the signs that Jesus did, revealing his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, fast forward to John 19 and Jesus' execution. As Jesus is about to die, he says that he's thirsty. And somebody puts bitter wine on a sponge and just forces it into his face. Now, the person who forces the wine, (laughs) this is one of those instances where even if it wasn't Jesus, I just think, who does that? Like, somebody's being executed and you're going to just, I have have problems with that. Uh, So, I'll get through. 
So the person who forces the wine into Jesus' face, he mocks him as he does it. Let's see if Elijah is going to come and save him. And in John's gospel, this is the final cruelty and injustice that Jesus has to endure, is having that bitter wine stuck in his face before he dies. Now, that, I believe, is the seventh of the signs in John's gospel. And I think the contrast between the two is plain. You have a wedding, you have an execution. You have really good wine, you have really bitter wine. You have rejoicing, you have mocking. And I think that John in his gospel presents it in this way on purpose to highlight the irony of the gospel is that Jesus takes the worst and he offers us the best. And I think that a God who loves in such a way is worthy of our allegiance. So that when we hear the good news, when we hear the proclamation of a just, kind, powerful king, we don't have to hear that cynically, that we can hear that in love. Among all the counterfeit options, this is a God who puts his money where his mouth is. He's not a self-exalting despot. He's not a narcissistic dictator. But the creator himself achieving victory by means of self-sacrifice. Absorbing the worst so that we can have the best. And that, to me, is the heart of the gospel. And it opens us up into all these broad ways of creatively ministering for God in the context that he's called us. And by offering himself in this compelling way, he calls us to the same life of self-sacrifice as we offer the world the good news of God's reign. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.